I'm Matt Swain, and you're listening to the Reimagining Communications podcast, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges facing companies on the road to optimizing their communications for the future. Today, I'm joined by Brian Wax, Senior Director of Usability and Design at Broadridge. Brian, thanks for joining today. Thanks for having me, Matt. So, Brian, you've been in the design world for more than 20 years, including agency roles and working in the financial services space. Can you talk a little bit about the the progression of your career and how you landed at Broadridge? Sure, absolutely. I set out for college with the intent to design theme park attractions, wow. uh, movie set stages, just themed entertainment in general. And in my high school yearbook, my career goal was that I wanted to be a designer for Disney Imagineering. Cool. So that's where I that's where I thought I'd end up. And so I majored in theater production, scenic design. And every summer, they'd, they'd ask me to go to some summer stock program, like in some weird place where I'd probably work unpaid. But I decided to go work at Chemical Bank in Manhattan. And I worked in their information technologies and operations training department, where I created um, multimedia presentations. When there. is this? This is like around 1996, right okay. around the time that Chemical Bank merged with Chase. And one of the projects I worked on back then was creating a visual timeline of the two banks. So that was probably the first time I got into doing multimedia design. And that was, you know, 1996, right around the time when the internet started getting popular. And I decided I wanted to learn HTML. So I remember we were, we were on a family vacation in Florida. And I said, you know what, I'm going to borrow my dad's laptop and I'm going to teach myself HTML. So I set out on a career to merge my design skills with my passion for technology. I didn't know how I was going to do that, but luckily I was, I think, in the right place at the right time. And I got a job in 97 working at CMP Media on a product called NetGuide. You could think about it as like a TV guide for the internet. I was the designer and then art director over there. Then I got recruited by IXL. IXL was one of the first online design agencies. I worked there on the GE account. I was the senior art director on the General Electric account. Wow. And yeah, it was quite a few years. I still remember everything was done in Universe 57 condensed bold oblique font. I'll never forget that. And then the dot-com bubble burst and 9-11 happened and, and a lot of the agencies closed their doors. And I think I made it to the last round of, of layoffs, which, you know, I thought was a good thing. You know, I was working up to the very end, but there was no money left at the end. <laughs> people, right. who, people who got laid off early, they got severance packages. Right. So, yeah, I found myself, doors were locked, and I had to go figure out what was next for myself. So I ended up becoming an independent contractor, mm-hmm. and I worked at Razorfish for four or five years, also in their financial services vertical. There I was in their financial services vertical on J.P. Morgan Chase, Capital One, and, uh, and Morgan Stanley. From there I went to Smith Barney. Uh, I spent a year at Smith Barney and then ended up back at Morgan Stanley. Right. They, it was right around the time that, of their, their merger. And a buddy of mine was starting up the user experience group and he was starting up an internal agency at Morgan Stanley. And he reached out to me and said, hey, how would you like to run the visual design arm of the department? So I ended up back at Morgan Stanley. And it was kind of crazy because everything that I had done at Razorfish, when I got to Morgan Stanley, I walked in and everybody had all my designs up on their screens, all the developers were working on it. I'm like, wow, because, you know, you're on the agency side, you just usually throw something over the wall and you never see it again. And so now I'm on the other side and I see people are actually using this. And all these applications, which I didn't design, but they all look like, you know, they all look like the design standards that, mm-hmm. that I worked on. It was kind of cool, but I spent probably eight or nine years working on the same, the same application, probably three iterations of it. Going through three iterations of that product, 
there's a lot of evolution of technology, a lot in yes. platforms, whether it was for you as a designer, technology that you could apply. Yeah, like the design tools as well exactly. as the platforms that, it, that it's built on. Right, and then also the platforms it's built on and then the client or end user expectation. Or even just like the, the look and feel of the applications. You know, yeah. you could look at it and say this, you could pretty much tell when things were designed by how they look. Just because there's design trends, skeuomorphism, you know, rounded corners and drop shadows. Mm -hmm. And, you know, now we're more into flat design and material design. But back then, everything was about gradients and drop shadows. Right. So then you made the jump to Broadridge. I'd love to hear a little bit more about the projects that you're working on today. What are some of these problems that you're helping solve on the client side? What improvements in usability and design are you looking to deliver to the client? So at Morgan Stanley, I was doing the same thing pretty much day in and day out, same types of applications. When I got to Broadridge, my first project was to design an iOS wallet application for a large media and entertainment company. So it felt like I was working on a hackathon project, which I love. That was like my at my last job, we had these hackathon days where we'd, we'd get together and just come up with something crazy and we'd have one day to work on it. And that's pretty much what this was like. When I worked with the client, they with their marketing department and they send over brand assets, using some of the new prototyping tools that we have, we were able to put the device on a phone and present it to the client, and it looked like the real deal. It looked like a fully functional wallet app that we designed pretty much overnight. I guess now my job at Broadridge, I'm really reimagining customer communications. Everything from proxy campaigns to interactive statements and even preference management systems. So um, for preference management, you know, people are used to getting these their print statements, but not everybody wants to receive it by print. You know, there's a big push towards digital, obviously. Yeah. I mean, that means more than just email and SMS, but, you know, we could also send communications out to like Facebook Messenger or cloud storage devices, uh, cl cloud storage like Box or Dropbox or Google Drive. Mm -hmm. And some clients may want to receive it at some uh, one, one of those locations, or maybe they want it at all of those locations. You know, I've been designing interfaces that integrate with the client sites as well as one-off like consent campaigns. Hey, you know, we noticed that you're you're getting this document digitally. How about receive all, you receive all these other ones digitally too? And so we we could really target them like that using co these consent campaigns. Are you getting proactive client feedback as you go through the process, or are you designing to as a first step of what what's possible? Obviously, we take our educated best guess at what we think works. Mm -hmm. We have a series of of user testing tools, mm -hmm. so we could test along the way. We don't, you know, in the old back in the old days, we would user testing would be something that happens after something launches, but now we could actually test things along the way. A good example of the evolution of the tool of set the tool that set. you have that helps you move more in a more streamlined fashion, but also delivers more value to the client and ultimately the end consumer. Yep. Yep. And even with that, um, that wallet application, I, I think while we were presenting it, we were able to actually make changes to the prototype on the fly based upon the client's feedback. Mm -hmm. Using the design tools, we would you know, update prototype and it would update on the fly. So besides the uh, preference management systems, I've been doing a lot of work on, on proxy campaigns. Mm -hmm. And that's for corporate issuers or mutual funds. And basically they're trying to get increased voting response rates. They want to meet Gorham quicker yep. with less touch points. So we, we use SMS messaging, highly branded email campaigns, and microsites in order to achieve those those results. And they've been they've been pretty successful. Excellent. Yeah, I mean, in the past, you get a uh, text only email that says, you know, it's time to vote your proxy. And I don't think most people even know what that means. You know, so creating a branded experience 
that explains what a proxy is and what are the matters that their companies are asking you to vote on. You can't just ask someone to vote without telling them what they need to vote on. Right, so. and, and you're also giving them the op- you're giving the company, your client, the opportunity to incorporate video or have message from the shareholders, exactly. questions and answers. Exactly. You're helping the investor feel more invested in the decision on how to vote their proxy. Yeah, in the past, they'd have to download the proxy statement, which is, you know, written in, in legalese, and, and I don't think anybody's doing that. Right. We're making it more understandable and digestible for the user. And then, you know, you could also give them the link to download the file if they, if they want it, but just make it a more useful communication. Well, I think that also feeds toward the value of moving somebody from a paper-based to a paperless experience. It speaks to the, the value of that communication. It tends to be the communication from a business that consumers and businesses alike would be most likely to interact with because they have to, they want to either see what their current balance is if they've grown or, or shrunk, or they need to pay a bill and they need to understand the details around it. So it's a huge opportunity for the business to to interact with their clients as right. well. And we're pushing this to them. Right. So you're taking the point of friction of remembering the user ID and password right out of the process. We did a lot of user testing around like what kind of information can we put into these messages. I know at least on one specific instance, we we did everything on the, in the email in percentages as opposed to having dollar amounts. And right. then when you clicked over to the secure microsite, then we actually showed the dollar amounts. Oh, interesting. Happy medium. You could have one share or a million shares. If someone got their hands on that email, they wouldn't, they'd have no idea. So are there common design challenges in general that the clients are, are asking you to solve for across all types of communications that you're, you're working on? It's rare that they come to us and say, hey, figure it out. I feel like they usually say, hey, we need this. And we have to go back and, and question and say, why, do, why are you saying you need this? Like, what problem are we trying to solve? Like, they, they'll come to us and say, hey, we're trying to solve this. And sometimes they're right, and sometimes they haven't even spoken to their users, and they're just, you know, they're making assumptions. So I, I'd say in terms of shortcomings, like projects that are designed without an understanding of what the actual users need, that's, that's a shortcoming. Mm-hmm. I think most projects need to start out with a workshop, you know, that help figure out what problem needs to be solved. By the way, it's amazing how much can be accomplished in a workshop when you Absolutely. get people in the room together. Right, and then look at what you achieve after the workshop as opposed to what the client asked for originally. It's not always the same thing. Exactly, because the workshop exposes new areas or different angles, and you, you uncover what the real challenge is compared exactly. to what the challenge was in the bullets that, that were sent over by email. Yep, and the projects that I found have been most successful are the ones that launch early with limited but basic but required functionality. Yep. And then we listen to the, what the users need in terms of making enhancements. And it could totally reshape the project. And you look back at what the original request was, and you're like, wow, I can't believe this is, right. this is what we ended up with. This is not what, you know, what we were even hired for. And it also ensures that like, dev cycles are, are spent wisely and ultimately results in a, in a better product. So testing and fine-tuning of the approach also plays an important role here. And you talked about that a little yep. bit, getting that user feedback. How are you gathering the feedback and how do you incorporate it into the design process? Typically, we start out with our best attempt at designing the perfect product, you know? Yep. But we don't know if that's the right product until we test as, as we discussed. And I can give you an example of something we did recently for a financial services client of ours. We were redesigning an email campaign mm-hmm. and we thought it looked pretty good. The next morning, this was like 5 o'clock in the afternoon, and we were presenting the next morning. I said, you know what? Why don't we user test this 
And, you know, we used some really cool online user testing sites. So what we did was we genericized their existing email and we genericized the redesigned email with a fictitious name. Right. And then we went out and we screened for their clients as well as their competitors' clients. And we showed them both emails. And we were able to actually capture screen movement and voiceover. And we had their own clients saying, wow, this is light years ahead of this other email. And then when we presented to the client, we actually played the sound bites back to them. Right. And we're like, these are your clients critiquing your current email and the redesigned email. And it was pretty powerful. I do find it really compelling to take a brand's consumer and share feedback direct from their mouth versus just, here's what our design thinking is. It, instead, it's, we've applied our design thinking best practices, and then we've actually gone and refined our approach based on what we're hearing from the market. And sometimes it's their customer, and other times it's just a consumer that, that uses that type of service because ultimately you're just looking for, is it navigable? What's their initial reaction? And is it a quote-unquote frictionless experience with whatever you're trying to drive. So I feel like you're also having to walk that line of trying to create the optimal experience for the end user, but you're also working within client constraints, whether that's their preconceived notions on, on what works and doesn't, or it's their technology platforms or, or something else. So how do you balance what you feel strongly is the right way to go versus where the client wants you to ultimately end up. Yeah, and it's definitely a delicate balance because not only is it the client and their customers, but a lot of times it's also regulatory. So, you know, we have to, we have to figure out the regulatory requirements there too. Like recently, we were working on a, a statement redesign and we came up with this really cool concept. Then we realized we had to put in all these disclaimers and the client... The client's like, well, we don't want that on the page, but it's a regulatory requirement. So obviously the, the, the customers, would, would they, they don't really care about it, but we kind of have to have that from a re regulatory perspective. Oh, and then you asked about preconceived notions. And so a couple of weeks ago, I was working with a client, and the client said, I've been doing this the same way for 25 years. Why would I change it now? It works. And when I heard that, I figured, oh, 25 years, that's ripe for disruption, you know? Yeah. Something hasn't been changed. Five years five, is right. Five years, disruption. right. You know, that's tough because if they don't disrupt themselves, then someone else can come along and disrupt mm -hmm. them. I agree, especially for if you think about regulatory or transactional communications, it's more often it's like if it's not broken and I'm checking the boxes of having that communication delivered, then what do you want from me? Right. And that's when the conversation probably needs to go to the next person in line that's looking from more of a brand lens, marketing, customer experience, and, and saying, are you truly delivering a consistent experience across this relationship or not? Right. Or we have to send the email. Why not make it a useful email? Exactly. Right? I mean, to that point, there's some very large brands that seem to struggle with sending an email that's not all block text, this, oh, yeah. this action has been taken because as soon as it goes to transactional or regulatory, the experience just plummets and somebody might even say like, is this really from that brand? And it actually creates more confusion than it does, you know, check the box of a simply delivered communication. Right. Or we could, you know, put a layer above that, put a layer above it that explains to the user what it is, 
they have access to that. They're, they're probably not going to do anything with it, but at least you could put in layman's terms what, what it is that we're asking them to do or that they need to download. Exactly. We talked a little bit about the, the tools and technologies that you use as a designer, but I would also be curious to hear about what tools and technologies you're most excited about when you consider the improvements that they can bring to the customer experience in the future. We do a lot of email campaigns, and I feel like they really haven't changed much for a while. Mm-hmm. Like They're basically just text, links, and images. And there's a couple of exciting things on the horizon, or actually they're here now. One of those is AMP, stands for Accelerated Mobile Pages, and it was created to just make a faster web page, but they've extended that now to emails as well. And what that means is that you could do rich and engaging emails, things that you could do in the browser, you could now do in email. So for instance, I'm working on a campaign now that has a message to shareholders from the CEO, and it's a video. And you know, traditionally, what we'd have to do is take a screenshot of the video and fake a little play button and then launch a microsite with an embedded YouTube player. With AMP, you could actually put the video in the email, and users could watch the video right, right there within the email. That creates a much more frictionless experience than having to send them away from the site because you're going to lose them. You know, they're not going to they're, they're not going to do it. They may click it if it's in the email. Is it an improvement in the background, or is it actually something that influences how you design because of that? Evolution? Well, I mean, it gives you a lot more possibilities. You, know, you yeah. could put carousels in. You could put forms in. You could put forms in the email. Mm-hmm. Right? right now, you can't put forms in an email. So, you could actually, you know, maybe there'll be a day when you could actually vote, vote from right there in the yeah. email. And uh, that would be really frictionless. Yeah, AMP for email, that's definitely one. Another one, there's a lot being done in the area of, of uh, text messaging by both Google and Apple. So Apple has their business chat. I don't know if you've seen that yet. Yeah. It's like the next generation SMS, and a lot of companies are using this. They could fully brand text messages with their colors, their logos, a verified indicator so you know you're actually talking with that company. Right. I know like one of our clients... They actually created like almost like a little microsite on there where you could you could ask questions and there's questions and answers and that's all happening right within iMessages. Oh, very cool. So that's cool. And then Google has something similar called Google RCS, which is their rich communication services. We talked a little bit about that in episode 20 with Chris Nicholson from Impulse Mobile. And he was talking about how essentially rich communication services are going to completely disrupt the app space because you're not going to need to download an app in the future. Because you can right everything's there. going to be embedded yeah. right in that text message. Yeah, I think I think that's where things are headed. And I, um, even the Apple service, they have integrated Apple Pay in there now, so you could you could you know purchase things right from within iMessages. So, how do you expect the next five to ten years to shape up from a usability and design perspective? Is there leading edge design thinking? that becomes commonplace where the design of today starts to fade away? So the first part of your question was like, where are things headed in, in the next five to 10 years? And I think five to 10 years is like an eternity in, in our yeah. space. If you yeah. think about it, a little over 10 years ago, people didn't even have smartphones. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, now everything's smartphones, mobile, social, social media. None of that really existed much longer than 10 years ago. So it's hard to say. If I were asked that a, a couple of years ago, maybe five years ago, I would have said like AR and VR. Mm-hmm. And I still haven't really experienced that maybe in the gaming area, but it really hasn't caught on like people would have expected. And I'm excited to see how emerging technologies like machine learning and artificial intelligence and maybe like voice technology yeah. progress. That'll be interesting from a UX perspective too, how you design for those. You know, it's not traditional traditional design. 
in terms of the tools that we're using. They're, they're progressing very quickly. One of the tools that I use, they launch an update. Every time I launch the application, I, I feel like it's telling me there's a new version of it available. They're constantly iterating and adding in all kinds of cool things. Specifications, for instance, like mm-hmm. we used to spend ages creating specifications. Right now, I click one button from my design tool, and it spits out the specs for the developers. They have everything they need. Yeah, I mean, that used to be like, you know, a six-month project, drawing little red lines and Showing measuring, measuring pixels yeah, and, exactly. yeah, by hand. And now it's all automated. And same with the prototyping, like we discussed earlier. It's just built into the tool set. So I think that's going to continue to evolve very rapidly. And then as the design tool evolves, again, it's benefiting not only the designer, but the client and the end consumer because you're able to move a lot faster. Well, yeah, exactly. What design thinking today fades away in the future? Design thinking. So that puts a lot of emphasis on like rapid iteration. And I think from a design perspective, what ends up happening is that you're always rushing to launch. So from a features and functionality perspective, we're getting there. The problem is that the attention to detail a lot of times suffers. And I can give you an example. Recently, we added some functionality. And I designed the whole flow really nicely in in our design tool and created a prototype. And we were in such a rush to get it out the door that it worked, but it didn't look exactly how it was designed. Mm -hmm. And I I kept hearing, like, isn't it better to have the functionality than not to have the functionality at all? And I had to think about it, you know? And my response was, is it better to open up a restaurant with with crappy food or wait until you get it right so people come back to your restaurant, you know? Like, how much more effort would it take to style it the way it was supposed to be styled? Yeah, it's obviously it's better to have the functionality because users could actually use it. There's a balance there. It's a speed to market and then an agile approach where you're constantly improving. But the question is, if your first impression is, man, this is a bad experience, then you then might not even come back and get a second chance. Right. So maybe there's like prescriptive nature of design thinking becomes more flexible. Maybe there's more emphasis placed on design systems and execution. And I think that would really help it a lot than you know, just trying to get things out the door and constantly iterating because I think you tend to stray from the desired design. Well, Brian, I know we need to get you back to designing and off this podcast. (laughs) So thank you so much for a great discussion and looking forward to seeing your work in the future. Thanks a lot, Matt. I'm Matt Swain, and you've been listening to the Reimagining Communications podcast. If you like this episode and think someone else would too, please share it and don't forget to subscribe. To learn more about Broadridge, our insights and our innovations, visit broadridge.com or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. LinkedIn.